Life as a Trainee Patent Attorney, Part 3. Welcome to the latest episode of Discover IP, the podcast where we bring you insights into the patent profession so you can understand if it might be the right career path for you. I'm Ben Chapman, a patent attorney here at Cartmills and Ransford, and I have the pleasure of being joined again by my colleagues Maria Nikolova and Brad Wilson, who've now finished their first year here at Cartmills, so they're now second year trainee patent attorneys. Brad, Maria, welcome. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. So this is the final part of our three-part mini-series looking at the day-to-day life of trainees here at Cartmills. In the first two episodes, we had a chat about your first six months here. And so today we'll look at what you've been up to in the second half of your first year and also look forward to what you've got to expect in the rest of your training. So I just wondered if you guys wanted to talk us through any of the big work developments you've had in the last six months. So one of the ones that I've had recently, Ben, was I was given an SPC portfolio to prosecute across Europe. Just to jump in there, <laughs> an SPC for those people who aren't completely up on all their different types of intellectual property rights is essentially an extension of the patent term for particular types of inventions, particularly medical inventions. Yeah. So the general idea is that if you have a pharmaceutical product like somewhere in the UK, you have to get regulatory approval before you can sell that product. You often find clients end up in a situation where they have patents for pharmaceutical products, but they can't actually use their patent or will use their product because they have this regulatory barrier they then have to overcome. And so there's a delay from when they can actually use their invention. And so to compensate for this, a number of European countries have developed a system called SPCs, Supplementary Protection Certificates, which compensates for this. And so one of the things that we do at Cartmills is we prosecute these portfolios for our clients. And so it'll be a case where a client will come and say, we have this drug, we have a patent for it. We've now got our marketing authorization. That's the regulatory approval. Can you help us prosecute and file SPC applications in various European countries across the continent? And so... As a first-year trainee, they give this portfolio to you, and so you're able to prosecute 30 applications across Europe. So that's the 27 EU members plus the UK and then Norway and Iceland. It's interesting, isn't it, how very soon you realise that the job of a patent attorney isn't just dealing with patents, but there's all these other complementary rights that you have to consider. Yeah, no, definitely. One of the great things about it is, well, because it's such a large portfolio and it's given to you and you're expected to manage it. So you're given a lot of responsibility and freedom to essentially prosecute the application. And so because these are national rights, so they're based on each European country, we can only prosecute the UK application. So if we want to prosecute the Slovenian application or the Polish application, we have to then correspond with uh, the local attorneys there. And so there's a lot of work emailing local attorneys um, helping out them drafting the application, checking over the application, making sure they've defined the pharmaceutical compound, have they referenced it properly, and um, checking the definition. All these things are really important for the client's protection. So you have to get involved with each European country. So it's a lot of work, but it's really nice because you get given the responsibility. It's you that's emailing the attorney. The attorney's replying to you. A lot of cases, especially when you first start off in the career, you're CC'd in the emails and sort of hiding in the background. But at this stage now, you're replying to the attorneys that are like responding to you first name basis. You're front and centre managing across a very, as you say, a very wide number of countries. Yeah, exactly. So I've really enjoyed that. I um, really enjoyed the responsibility. We're at the stage now, so it was just um, a few weeks ago where we actually passed the deadline 
Um, so they have a sort of drop dead deadline, which means it can be extended for filing in various countries once you have the regulatory approval. So at the stage now where we've filed all the applications, we actually have a few granted already, and then we've also got a few objections. So the objections we tend to be raised are towards the definition of the product. So we're now corresponding with the local agents um, to try and overcome that. I guess what's interesting there as well, it's pulling in aspects, not just of the patent law and the protection side of things, but also the regulatory approval process and how that medicine is actually regulated. And that's like a essential part of the career is that sort of interface between patent law, sort of commercial interests of the clients, and then the regulatory authorities all come in at the center point of SPC prosecution. That sounds really interesting stuff, Brad. And how about you, Maria? So for me, I think the biggest highlight has been getting involved in drafting a notice of opposition. And I think I said before that I have a portfolio that I help manage of EP cases. And that's actually where that came out of, because I also help with monitoring for the same client. So what we do is we have a list of applications that they're potentially interested in opposing. So just to jump in there, Maria, just for the benefit of our listeners, an opposition is a procedure where after a patent has been granted, then other interested third parties can say to the European Patent Office, essentially, we don't think this should have been granted and we bring forward our own arguments on behalf of our clients why that patent should be revoked. So you've been on the lookout for patents being granted. Yeah, exactly. So I just have periodically been checking on the status of the applications and whenever there is an opposition deadline coming up, we would discuss it with the client. So for this particular case, they asked us to have a look at the claims, how we would interpret them and whether we think that the technology that they work with would be in any way overlapping or it might be an area of interest for them that they might want to develop in. So I had a look at how I would interpret the claims and I thought that it would be worthwhile for us to oppose the patent because I looked at the claims and I also looked at the examples at what the technology actually did and it seemed like the claims were broader than the examples and so covered a few more instances of performing the method. So I thought it would be, and I could also think of some of the prior art that we'd encountered that could potentially be used as a novelty and inventive step prior art in this case. So we presented to the client and we said what we think. They thought that we should file an opposition. So having worked on the case already, I started drafting a short opposition with the prior art that I was already aware of. So that involved a little bit more in-depth analysis of the features of the claim and the features of the prior art, explaining clearly how the features map onto what was already known. And I actually got a little bit too in-depth on dependent claims, especially. I think I was just trying to do a third job But that was something that I learned, I guess, through the process of drafting is that, especially with a short opposition like this, we wanted to make sure that the main points and the main attacks were really clear and really easy to understand. And dependent claims were not as important to flesh out at this stage in time. It was more important to just put something down on paper And we could argue that in the oral proceedings if 
the patentee decided to introduce some of the claims to overcome our initial objections. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Maria. Sort of part of the opposition work is you're really developing the advocacy side of things. So it's not just making sure that you've got all the technical points, but it's also making sure that you're emphasizing the really strong points that you want to make. So I think that's really interesting. I thought it was really great as well, Maria, that this all came out. It's not just a client comes to you and says, here is a patent that we want to oppose. This is an ongoing relationship that you've had with this client, helping them monitor patents that might be of interest and give them that advice and really help them identify something. And that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from the prosecution side, being aware of the relevant prior art in that specific area was really advantageous in having a look at these applications that they might want to oppose. That's brilliant. It sort of mirrors what Brad was saying is you're doing this work that's not in a vacuum. It's really got real commercial impact for your clients, which is really interesting, I think, and really adds a lot of satisfaction and excitement. It's also amazing that just over the course of a year, by getting involved in the patent prosecution portfolio, you've really got to know this client. And then this is broadened out to take in both the defensive part of their patent work, their own portfolio, but also their offensive part, looking at other people's patents that they might be interested in. I think it also just happened seamlessly. Like I didn't even realize that I was internalizing all of these facts about their technology. And how about you, Brad? Anything else from the last six months? Kind of picking up where Maria was talking about in terms of how intimate you become with sort of clients' portfolio and what their interests are. I always remember when we first started at Cartmills during the introduction, they said something along the lines of like, our interests are the client's interests, which kind of stuck with me because I thought it was a bit of a, a sort of interesting thing to say. I sort of understood this better with a recent prosecution case that I had where we had a client who had essentially a medical device which was for use in implants following surgery. And we'd been prosecuting this application for several rounds now. And what I mean by that is we'd essentially failed the application and the examiner came back with objections several times maintaining those objections. And so we were in the situation where we were realising we were actually going to struggle to get this patent granted that would be of any commercial interest to the client. So given the cost of prosecuting this application, we were in the mind that we should consider the client's commercial interest. And so we decided to have a call with them, lay out the groundwork, essentially potential amendments we could make, how the sort of grant patent would end up. And we came to the conclusion that it was in their commercial interest to abandon the application because in the long term, that would serve them better. And it sort of just highlights this important fact when you're a patent attorney, it's not just that you're there to churn out arguments for the client constantly. You're actually there to look at their applications and assess is there actually going to be any use in getting this through prosecution if it's of no commercial interest to them at the end. So it's not just a simple case that you're constantly arguing back against the examiner. Sometimes you have to accept what the examiner says or even sometimes you have to accept what the examiner's saying about this invention is true and you have to abandon the application. Picking up on that, Brad, it's often not even that you just are accepting what the examiner is saying, but it's looking at the actual claim scope that you're going to get out of a particular application and having that understanding of what the client's real interests are. And I think that's a really good phrase for it. You realise that you're not going to be able to get them anything that actually will be useful for them. Yeah, exactly. Because when we had the call, we were essentially of the mind that we can limit the scope of protection. So we can essentially narrow down to one of the embodiments, but they came back to us and said, well, 
that's not the embodiment we're really interested in. So we'd spend all this money prosecuting this application to have a patent, which is worth nothing that we can't license. So sort of sell the rights to a third party. And so they decided to abandon it. But they really appreciated the fact that we were able to consider that rather than just essentially fighting back against the examiner, dragging them through prosecution that would have been no interest to them. Exactly. It's stopping taking a look at where they're investing their resources and just making sure that they're doing it in the right place and really having their interests at heart. And that's a really great example, Brad, of developing not just the actual skills of a patent attorney, which is making the arguments and understanding the technical side, but also those skills that you will develop over the course of your career as an advisor to your clients and really looking at their commercial interests and how that fits into what you can achieve from the legal side and the technical side. And how about you, Maria? Anything else? Yeah, I guess building on the client relationship and thinking about the client's interest. I had a recent case where it's a different client whose portfolio I've been helping to manage. And this time it's a portfolio of global cases. So kind of similarly to Brad, I guess, but not specifically within Europe. This case was in China. And we had pending claims to a number of compounds but not all of them had data in the application to support their effects. So this wasn't actually a problem in a few of the other jurisdictions because the compounds were all quite similar. And so we could make the argument that you could extrapolate the data for the ones that we did have to cover the ones that we didn't have. But China being a very strict jurisdiction in terms of data available and what you're able to claim raised objections to those broader claims. And actually, the local attorneys advised us to simply delete the compounds that we didn't have support for in order to progress the application, because we'd already tried to make the argument that you could extrapolate the data. And then we considered our options, and we could either delete these compounds and attempt to prosecute them in a divisional application. But then we thought that if we did that, we would probably face the same objection. So we decided to just try one last time to argue for our broader scope and maybe expand on some of the points that we'd made before. So I looked into this and I just focused on some more details of the chemistry. So the, for example, the similarities in molar mass, the similarities in the potential for bond making, so hydrogen bond making, for example, and the overall composition of the compounds. And that seemed to work. And it was a good result in the end. The examiner accepted the arguments. So I was really happy about that. And it, it was, I think, the first case where I had provided arguments that led to an allowance. I think that's really great because that's really being able to bring your technical knowledge to bear and you built up that confidence over the first couple of months that you know what you're doing and so you can provide those extra arguments to our Chinese colleagues who are able to then put them forward to the patent examiner and, and get a, a good result there. Moving on then from what you've been doing in the office, you're at the end of your first year. You're both actually not in the office all the time at the moment, are you? You're undertaking your certificate in intellectual property at Queen Mary's. So I wondered, Brad, do you want to talk us through what that is, what it entails, and how you're finding it. So, yeah, Ben, as the first step um, in the training process for becoming a patent attorney, the trainees at Cartmills um, undergo a course at Queen Mary University. 
an intellectual property law. And it's important to say that this isn't just focused on patent law, but it's actually just a general groundwork of intellectual property law as a whole. So we have modules on patent law, but we also have modules on copyright. So the protection of like artistic and literary works. We have trademark modules, which is the protection of signs, which indicate origin of a particular trader. We have design law, which is the protection of aesthetic and ornamental designs with no function. And you have foundations of English law generally as well, like a, a broad overview of how the legal system in the UK works and how the court system is structured, right? Yes, when you start the course, before you start actually any of the intellectual property law, you get a sort of intensive one-week course on the fundamentals of English law. And it covers everything through civil law, essentially. So contract, sort of European law, which comes up a little bit with regulations and directives, particularly for trademarks. And how have you been finding the course? I've been enjoying the course. Um, it's kind of been a nice break because obviously you spend your first year training in the office. So you're in the office five days a week. And how it works at Cartmills is when you go on the course, you spend three days a week at university, then one day a week in the office, and then you get one day a week for study leave. So you can use that to catch up on the lectures. Personally, I found it quite interesting to take a look at all those other bits of intellectual property law that you're not generally doing on a day-to-day -day basis in the office. Yeah, I found the designs module interesting in that sort of complementary patents. In a lot of cases, you'll have designs which aren't functional, so they don't actually have a technical effect, but they just have an ornamental significance so you can get design protection. A really good part of the course has actually been the social element. So there's a number of patent attorneys from various firms across the UK, mostly London, but some out with in Cambridge, Oxford, that all attend the course. And so there's a number of social events. and We usually do a thing like after our lectures on Friday, we go for drinks after. So it's a really good chance to socialise, find people from our firms, ask how they're finding the job, what their sort of work habits are like, what sort of subject matter they're working on. It's really interesting as well, because as you say, most patent attorneys will do one course or another of these kinds. There's a few others apart from Queen Mary's, but you have these events where you're networking with the other people on the course and then obviously they're the people that follow you through in your career so you'll meet them at networking events you might be on the other side from them in oppositions and other matters going forward but they're people that will pop up in your career over the coming decades and there's quite a good few group working modules as well so one of the things you have to do in QM is we have a number of essay sections but you complete these essays in groups so it's a good chance to work with people from other firms see how they think how they approach problems that's quite interesting to kind of look just outside of the cartmill trainees and look at how other people are approaching these things. Maria, how are you getting on at QM? Enjoying it? Yeah, I'm enjoying it as well. Actually, I would say that my favourite is probably trademarks, just because I think trademarks, but also I guess all of the modules in general have given me more of an appreciation of how we're surrounded by intellectual property but I think trademarks as the ones that stick in my mind. I feel like every time I see anything that's an infringement or a potential infringement, a light goes off in my head. And I think what's interesting as well, just picking up on what we were talking about earlier with providing that commercial advice to clients as your career develops, these foundations that you lay in the Queen Mary course, even though they seem unrelated to your day-to-day -day patents work, they come up a lot when you start actually working with clients directly and talking about their commercial interests and talking about their intellectual property more broadly. You're often advising them on aspects related to their trademark portfolio or designs that they could file or copyright that might be relevant to certain parts of their 
technology and part of their work. So it's all very interesting stuff from an academic point of view. But as you move forward in your career, it also becomes quite vital to the advice that you're given. So I found it a very useful course to do for three months. But unfortunately, the learning and the exams don't stop there, do they? You've got a good couple of years of exams to look forward to as you go forward in your qualification process. Yeah. So Queen Mary, I think, essentially acts as an exemption from the UK foundation exams. And our next exam will be in March 2025. And that will be the pre-EQE. So that's the foundation exam for the European qualification. And that will have multiple choice questions on legal questions and also claim interpretation that you have to pass in order to take the EQE finals, which for us would be the year after the pre-EQE, so March 2026. And we can only enroll into the pre-EQE after two years of practice, which is why it has to happen in 2025. And then the finals are in 2026, and they contain four different papers, one on drafting, one on replying to an examination communication, one on opposition and a legal paper. And we'll be taking these over the course of a couple of weeks. It's a very intense couple of weeks, I can tell you that much. Yeah, I can see that from the other trainees in the office, actually, because some of them sit their exams in the office. And so there are usually a few, a row of offices that are blocked out just for exams. And you see their bags there when you come into work and you see their bags are still there when you leave. So it seems quite intense, but they're also very happy when they pass. Yes. It's one of those things you talk to any patent attorney who's qualified. Everyone's been through the same thing. It's quite a character building experience sitting your exams. So sorry, Maria, I think I jumped in there. That's getting to the end of your European qualification process. So hopefully if you pass all those four EQE, that's European qualifying exams, you're then a registered European patent attorney. But for patent attorneys based in the UK, generally they do the UK final qualifications as well. Yes. So with the UK exams, there are only two that we need to do if we pass all of the European ones. So it's just the legal paper and there's also a paper on infringement and validity. These are notoriously tricky exams as well. I think you talk to other European patent attorneys from other countries and apparently the UK still has the notoriety of having particularly difficult national exams, which is a point of pride, I suppose, that we all pass these. Uh, yeah, I'll see how I feel when I have to study for them. <laughs> but these are taken in October, usually, and there is some flexibility as to when we take them. But usually people take them after doing the pre-EQE. That's right. So it can be that you're all finished with all of your exams within four years of starting the profession if you're lucky enough to pass everything first time, which is probably worth flagging up is not the norm. I think most people have had to reset at least one or two exams. I certainly had to reset quite a few of my UKs, but that's probably not what you guys want to hear right now. Yeah, it's interesting, I guess, because we're not used to failing exams. And so having that be a real possibility is a little bit daunting. But we also get a lot of support within the firm with in-house tutorials or external courses study groups that can be organized within the cohort 
And so I feel like we're in a pretty good position support-wise. Yeah, I think that is one of the, the really good things about being at a larger firm, particularly one where everyone's in the same office, is you are, as you say, Maria, you're part of a large cohort. So you can have these tutorials that are run in-house and you've got lots of people to bounce ideas off of as you're studying and lots of people to commiserate with while you're studying as well. Exactly. Motivation and also just a forum for complaining. As I say, it's a part of the qualification process that every patent attorney has to go through and it's worth it in the end and definitely something I'm sure you'll both pass with flying colours and you'll be very proud of at the end once you have. Thank you for the fee. (laughs) That's great. So I suppose that's the next couple of years of the formal qualification process that will take you through from being trainee patent attorneys to qualified patent attorneys. But is there anything you're looking forward to outside of that qualification process in terms of your professional development? I think for me, imminently, I'm looking forward to the reply to the opposition that I filed. That's something that I'm kind of counting the days down until. But in general, I'm looking forward to getting more involved in opposition and appeal work because I really enjoyed the opposition that I drafted, the work involved in that, the sort of more concentrated, maybe a bit nitpicky analysis of the claims. And I think as well, just developing my relationship with clients, I think that's been a theme throughout our work, as we said earlier. And I'm looking forward to being more of a direct contact to clients, getting more of a personal relationship with them, I guess. And as you said, building that relationship where you get to advise on the strategy. It's a really great sentiment, Maria. It's a really where everyone's trying to aim to be, is to be that trusted advisor for their clients. And yes, it is very fun doing the opposition work because you do get to be very nitpicky. And who doesn't like poking holes in other people's patents? Exactly. Brad, how about you? Yeah, I guess in the sort of coming years, the thing that I'm most looking forward to on expanding is my sort of knowledge of different subject matter. So I've generally had this guiding principle of molecules to machines, trying to get prosecution in as many different areas as possible. So that's what I'll be looking to build on in the next couple of years. And then building on that, hopefully more oppositions. That's really great. I mean, one of my favourite things about the job is the fact that you can work on lots of different subject matter. And, you know, you're looking at lots of different technologies and lots of different fields and working across lots of different clients is one of the best bits about the job. So that's a great sentiment as well, Brad. Yeah, I think the sort of best day that you can have in the office is when you come in and then you leave maybe eight hours later and you've worked on several different devices, a few drug molecules, just completely different subject matter between the hours. It does help keep things fresh. Well, Maria, Brad, thank you so much for your time over the last couple of episodes talking through everything. It's been really interesting to hear how your work has developed over the first year here and chat to you about your outlook coming up. So again, just thank you so much for your time. And I know this has been really interesting for all our listeners out there. No worries, Ben. So that's all we have time for on today's episode. Thank you for joining us in this little three-part series that we've done as part of Discover IP. If you've been inspired by Maria and Brad and their experiences as a first-year patent attorney and think it might be something you'll want to find out more about, then please do go to the Cartmills recruitment part of our website and there you'll be able to find out about the open days we run in our recruitment process. And if you have any questions, then feel free to contact us at cartmills 
www.careerspodcast.com forward slash careers. 